You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Effects of Esoteric Development. This is Lecture 5, entitled Transforming Judgments, Feeling and Willing, uh, given on March 24, 1913. It is important for us to consider this cycle of lectures properly. They provide a description of the, the experiences or inner transformations that one goes through in esoteric development or anthroposophical work. In this sense, what I have described should be viewed as something that can actually be experienced during such development. Of course, although I can mention only the most striking and most typical experiences, we should be able to form an idea from the description of these principal experiences of much else that can be observed throughout one's development. Yesterday we said that a greater sensitivity is acquired through practice toward what happens in the external life ether or in the etheric as a whole. These experiences are related to many others and we should pay particular attention to what we experience in relation to our faculty of judgment. As human beings within the world we assess whatever happens to us. We form our own ideas about things and consider one thing right, another wrong. Our capacity for judgment depends in general on what we call intelligence, shrewdness or discernment. Nevertheless, over the course of our development, we gradually come to see these capacities in a different light. I touched on this question yesterday when I mentioned our increasing discovery that Although we need a certain amount of shrewdness or common sense to begin the path to higher worlds, such shrewdness or cleverness is not the least bit valuable in matters that concern the higher spiritual life. We thus find ourselves in a situation that may appear untenable to the utilitarian individual, that something at first vitally necessary for higher development loses its value once we have attained that higher development. Therefore, we must do our utmost to develop sound judgment that weighs facts objectively on the physical level. Meanwhile, however, we must also clearly understand that during our sojourn in the spiritual worlds, the capacity for judgment does not have the same value that it does in the physical realm. If we wish to develop higher senses that are healthy and balanced, we must start from sound judgment. But for higher vision, this healthy power of judgment must be transformed into healthy vision. No matter how far advanced our development may be, we belong to this plane, and it is our task here to cultivate a sound capacity for judgment. Therefore we must see to it that we soon learn not to confuse life in the higher worlds with life on the physical plane. When we try to apply our experiences in higher worlds directly to the physical plane, we become impractical visionaries and useless as human beings. 
We must become accustomed to living fully in the spiritual plane, and when we leave the context of life in higher worlds, we must adhere as much as possible to what is appropriate for the physical level. We must carefully and conscientiously fulfill the two roles demanded by the duality of our spiritual and physical life. In this area we must learn to develop a correct relationship with the world by doing our best to avoid mingling with what actually belongs to the higher worlds and what belongs to everyday life. And we must avoid saying, as we may be tempted to do when we find someone unsympathetic, that we cannot tolerate a certain person's aura. It is better to use ordinary language and simply say that one finds so-and-so to be offensive. In this sense, it is better to be down-to-earth and to use expressions that may be right and justified, relate to the higher life as little as possible in daily life. We should carefully refrain from employing words, concepts, and ideas that belong to the higher life in our daily life. This may seem like a pedantic request to those who, out of enthusiasm for spiritual life, find it necessary to permeate their whole being with this spiritual life. And yet, what in ordinary life may seem pedantic is an important principle of training for the higher worlds. Therefore, even when it may seem more natural to describe ordinary life in terms that belong to higher life, let us translate them into the language most suited for the physical plane. I cannot emphasize enough that these things are not without consequence, but are significant and far-reaching in their effect. Once this is acknowledged, we can say without hesitation that in relation to life and the higher worlds, ordinary judgment is of little use, and we begin to feel that our previous mode of intelligence must now cease. Here again we notice an experience that becomes increasingly frequent, namely that we depend on the etheric life of the cosmos or on time. How often do we find today that young people begin to criticize everything, imagining that once they have acquired a certain capacity for judgment, they can say yes or no about everything, that they can philosophize on anything and everything. Esoteric development relieves the soul of the pretension that we can philosophize about everything imaginable, and we become aware that the meaningfulness of our judgments most of all requires the sound basis of maturity. We discover that we have to live with an idea we have received for a while, so that our etheric body can come to terms with it before we form a judgment we ourselves can affirm. We find that we must wait before we can judge with any certainty, and only then realizing the full significance of the words, quote, let the substance of your soul mature, and in so doing become more and more discerning, close quote. The odd thing about becoming more discerning in judgment is that we cannot always find the balance between the immediate necessity of making a judgment and the advisability of waiting and thus allowing a judgment to ripen. In just such matters we can greatly deceive ourselves, and only life's experience itself can enlighten us. Let's imagine that philosophers raise a question concerning cosmic mystery or cosmic law with some people who have reached a certain degree of esoteric development. When philosophers depend entirely on philosophical judgment, 
they, having invoked that kind of judgment, become convinced that they are correct about one point or another. We can understand why they hold to such a belief. However, those who have developed esoterically know very well that the question cannot be solved with the kind of judgment advanced by philosophers, since esotericists know that they themselves once entertained the same ideas that determine the judgment of philosophers. The esotericist now allows the question to mature inwardly, and this internal maturation process enables them to form a judgment on the matter. Esotericists know that having lived with the question, their judgment has ripened enough that they can formulate a more mature position. An understanding between the two is really out of the question, and in many cases the situation cannot be rectified. Agreement can be reached only when, in the philosophers, a feeling arises that allows certain things to mature in their own souls before permitting themselves to form an opinion on those matters. We must recognize more and more that opinions and positions must be acquired through struggle and persistent effort. We develop a deep and intense feeling for this through having acquired an inner feeling for time, which is related fundamentally to the development of the etheric body. After we have wrestled to gain a greater maturity in a particular situation, we gradually come to perceive a certain opposition that arises in the soul between the way we formerly judged such things and our present way of making a judgment. We notice that these two modes of judging are like two opposing forces, and thus we observe an inner flexibility of the temporal in ourselves. And we see that our later mode of making judgments must supersede the earlier mode. This is the dawning in our consciousness of a feeling for time created by the existence of inner conflicts, and it can arise only when the later mode of judgment opposes the earlier form. This is absolutely necessary for developing an experience or inner perception of time. We must realize that we can experience the etheric only when we acquire an inner perspective of time. Further, we always have the sense that the earlier judgment inwardly stirs our own capacity for judgment or cognitive power, and that the later form of judgment flows into us as though streaming toward us from without, and thus it is granted to us. The feeling of what was described in the last lecture becomes increasingly clear, namely that the discernment that originates within ourselves must be replaced by wisdom that arises through surrender to a stream coming toward us from the future. The experience of being filled with thoughts, as opposed to what we believed before, that we are the architects of our own thoughts, is the mark of progress. As we begin to feel more and more that we no longer produce our own thoughts, but that the thoughts think themselves in us, such a feeling indicates that the etheric body is gradually developing the necessary inner feeling for time. All of our earlier thoughts have the flavor of egoistic origin. By allowing the process of maturation to proceed, everything we have acquired will savor of the burning up or consuming of thoughts that were generated by the self.
Thus we gradually transform ourselves inwardly through a remarkable experience. We become increasingly aware that our own thinking or generating of thoughts must be suppressed because our thinking is something of less value, whereas surrendering to the thoughts that stream into us from the cosmos is of great worth. Our own life loses a part of itself, so to speak. This is extremely important. Our life loses the part we like to call self-generated thinking, and then only the self's feeling, perceiving, and willing capacities remain. These capacities are in fact transformed along with thinking. We no longer create our own thoughts, they think themselves in the soul. Feeling and willing merge in relation to this feeling that thoughts have their own forces, through which they think themselves in us. It could be said that feeling becomes more and more active, while the will becomes increasingly permeated with feeling. On the physical plane, feeling and will become more closely related to each other than they were before. We can no longer express an impulse of the will without an associated feeling. Many actions provoke a bitter feeling in us, others a feeling of exaltation. When we become aware of our will, we also experience a deeper understanding of our will impulses. We become the arbiters of them. We gradually come to reproach pleasurable feelings that are aroused merely for the sake of their satisfaction. There are other feelings that we must experience inwardly, feelings that we think must not show themselves in the human soul, otherwise they would not exist in the universe. We gradually find such feelings are more legitimate than the others. Here let me give a specific, even extreme example that illustrates what I mean. Some individuals, and I have no wish to disparage anything, but only want to express this somewhat radically, might, with every justification, enjoy a good meal. When they experience their pleasure, it is undeniable that something happens within them. But it matters little to the universe or the cosmos whether or not such people enjoy a good meal. It is of no consequence to the course of life in the cosmos. But when someone takes up the Gospel of St. John and reads only three or four lines, this has immense importance for the cosmos. Because if, among all the souls on earth, nobody were to read St. John's Gospel, the whole mission of the earth could not be fulfilled. Through our participation in these activities, spiritual forces radiate that contrast with and replace the dying elements of life and continuously renew life on earth. We must distinguish between a purely egoistic feeling, experience, and the experience through which we only provide a stage for a feeling necessary for the existence of the cosmos. Under certain circumstances, there may be those who, being able to do very little outwardly, nevertheless through a well-developed soul, not egoistically, for the sake of personal enjoyment, know that the feeling realm provides an opportunity to express what is important for the very existence of the cosmos. Such individuals are indeed doing something extraordinarily valuable for the cosmos. 
Let me add the following seemingly remarkable comment. There was once a Greek philosopher called Plato who wrote many books. As long as we live in our soul life, only on the physical plane, we may read his writings for instruction. This outer instruction is in and of itself significant for the physical plane. It is desirable to use every means of instruction on the physical plane, otherwise we remain ignorant. The achievements of the physical plane are there for our instruction, but if we take up the works of Plato again, after our soul has developed esoterically, we read them for a different reason. This is because Plato and what he created have a meaning in earthly life only when experienced also in human souls. In the light of this understanding, we read Plato's works not simply for instruction, but because we thus achieve something of positive value for the entire cosmos. We must cultivate something, therefore, in our feeling that enables us to distinguish between feeling that is egoistic and tends toward pleasure and satisfaction, and feeling that is selfless and arises as a wider-reaching sense of spiritual responsibility and obligation. This may extend even into ordinary life and to our perceptions of the outer aspects of life. Here we touch on a question that we might say sheds light on the social life from personal experience. When those who are familiar with the mysteries of esotericism observe the world and its ways, when they see how so many people waste their leisure time instead of ennobling their feelings with the gifts of spiritual creations, they could weep at humanity's stupidity, which ignores all life offers that could permeate human feeling and experience. Also in this area, we must point out that when such experiences are observed, a subtle egoism can manifest in human nature. We will observe in the following lectures how this more refined egoism has the capacity to conquer itself. Initially, however, it manifests as a more subtle egoism. As our spiritual development unfolds, however, we can experience personally a need for spiritual nourishment, a thirst for spiritual things. Strange as it may sound, it is true, nevertheless, that a person who develops esoterically may say after a certain stage and without pride or vanity that all the spiritual creations on earth are there to be enjoyed by human beings. That is just as it should be. And gradually the individual is drawn toward these spiritual delights. In this respect, esotericism will not cause any mischief in the world since one can rest assured that when this thirst for the spiritual creations of humankind manifests, it will do no harm. From what I have just described, something else becomes evident. We gradually feel our etheric body awakening as a result of the feeling our own thinking is less valuable and that the thoughts streaming into us from the cosmos are interwoven with the divine. We feel more and more that willing and feeling arise from one source. We begin to feel only egoism in our willing and feeling, whereas the gifts of wisdom that we feel permeating us are perceived as uniting us with the whole cosmos. This experience is then related to another. 
and we begin to feel that this inner activity of feeling and willing is imbued with inner sympathy and antipathy. We become increasingly more sensitive to an awareness that it is shameful to behave in a certain way because we have been endowed with a certain amount of wisdom. On the other hand, we may feel that it is right and proper to act as we do because we are aware of this measure of wisdom. An experience of self-control manifesting in the sphere of feeling follows naturally. A bitter feeling overtakes us when we feel a will impulse arise impelling us to do what is not justified in view of the wisdom that has become a part of us. This bitter feeling is perceived most clearly in relation to what we say. It is important for one who is developing anthroposophically to notice that this is where the whole inner life of feeling can be refined. In ordinary life, once people have said something or other, they don't think any more about it. On the other hand, those who have gone through an esoteric development are conscious of what they have said, and they feel a kind of inner shame when they have said something morally or intellectually unwarranted. They feel something like gratitude rather than self-approval. When they have been able to express something, that can be accepted by their acquired wisdom. When a certain inner self-satisfaction or complacency is felt by such people, after having said something that is right, and one also develops a delicate sensitivity for this, it indicates that they are still subject to vanity, which in no way serves to develop them. We learn in this way to distinguish between a feeling of satisfaction for having said something consistent with one's wisdom and the worthless feeling of self-complacency when we should not, which we should not allow to arise. We must instead develop a feeling of shame for having said something untrue or amoral, and we must develop a feeling of gratitude for wisdom which is bestowed on us and cannot be claimed as our own, since it is a gift from the universe. We must develop a feeling of gratitude that we have succeeded in saying something befitting such wisdom. We gradually begin to feel the same way in relation to our own thinking. As we have said, we must continue to be human beings on the physical plane, and whereas we must not attach too much importance to self-created thoughts, we must nevertheless continue to produce them. This self-generated thinking, however, becomes transformed since we submit it to the self-control just described. When we can say that a thought is our own creation and also that it agrees with the wisdom given to us, we develop a feeling of gratitude toward that wisdom. On the other hand, a false, unseemly or amoral thought is accompanied by an inner feeling of shame. We wonder how we can still be like this. Is it still possible to be so egoistic that we still think such thoughts despite the wisdom bestowed on us? It is is extremely important to feel this kind of self-control in one's inner being. The distinctive quality of such self-control is that it never arises through the critical intellect but always manifests itself, excuse me, manifests instead in feeling, in cognitive feeling. It is also important to carefully note the following. Those who rely only on intelligence 
and who apply only their critical judgment to the external world, will never be able to understand what is involved here, because it must arise within the feeling realm. When it does emerge in feeling, when such individuals manage to achieve this feeling, it manifests as a feeling arising from their own inner being. They identify themselves with feelings of shame or gratitude and feel that the self is one with them. If I were to represent schematically what is experienced here, I would say that we have the feeling of wisdom streaming in from above, coming toward us from above, streaming into the head from the front and filling us from top to bottom. The experience we experience something like shame streaming out of our own body in the opposite direction. We identify ourselves with this feeling and recognize the presence of wisdom as something bestowed from without. We then feel within ourselves a region where this feeling, which is now the I, capital, meets this in-streaming wisdom bestowed upon us. When we inwardly experience the region where these two streams meet, we have the proper inner experience of the etheric world. We experience thoughts pressing in from the external etheric world because the wisdom streaming toward us from this external etheric world presses in on us and is perceived by these two feelings. Such is the etheric world when perceived properly. And when we perceive it in this way, we climb toward the higher beings who descend only as far as the etheric body, not to the physical body. It is also possible, however, to experience this etheric world improperly. We experience it correctly when thinking and feeling meet as just described. The experience then is a purely inner process in the soul. On the other hand, the elementary or etheric world is not experienced correctly when we experience it at the boundary between our breathing and the etheric body. If we practice breathing exercises too soon or incorrectly in our training, we gradually come to witness our own breathing. By developing an awareness of the breathing process, which is ordinarily not perceived, one can achieve a self-conscious breathing and a capacity to perceive the etheric world can be associated with this experience. Through all kinds of breathing exercises, one may observe and experience etheric processes that are real in the outer world, but they belong to the lowest external psychic processes. When experienced too early, these never provide a true idea of the real spiritual world. At a certain stage of our esoteric exercises, it is possible, of course, to achieve voluntary control over the breathing process, but it must be directed properly. We can then perceive the etheric world at the boundary between thinking and feeling as described. And what we learn there only confirms what we have already come to know through the less subtle etheric processes occurring at the boundary between the etheric world and our breathing processes. Indeed, a world of genuine higher spirituality exists, to which we attach through the union of wisdom and feeling already described. Excuse me, to which we attain through the union of wisdom and feeling already described. 
There we penetrate to the accomplishments of the beings of the higher hierarchies in the etheric realm. There are, however, many and various elemental beings, good as well as bad, hostile, hideous, and harmful, that, if we meet them at the wrong time, encroach on us as if they were really important in the spiritual world, whereas they are really no more than the lowest dregs of the spiritual world. If we wish to penetrate into the spiritual world, we must also get to know these entities. It is inadvisable, however, to encounter them early in our training, because, strangely enough, if we first make their acquaintance without having walked the thorny path of our own inner experience, we develop a fondness for them, a marked inclination toward them. If people rise improperly, especially through a physical training that entails a change in the breathing processes, they will describe certain things related to this spiritual world as they appear to them. They describe them in such a way that many people take them to be extremely beautiful, whereas the one who perceives them intuitively may find them hideous and loathsome. Such things are very possible when we experience the spiritual world. There is no need to speak here of other methods that may be practiced in order to enter evil worlds. In occultism it is customary not to speak about what may be considered the dregs of this spiritual realm. It is unnecessary to enter this world, and therefore we do not usually speak of methods that interrupt the breathing process. The breathing process, when not used properly, leads inevitably to those lower beings we must one day come to know, but not at the beginning, because in that case they would have a certain inappropriate seductive power. We get a truly objective perspective of their value only when we have penetrated the spiritual world by another path. If we begin to feel shame and gratitude streaming out of us, as it were, in response to the wisdom bestowed on us, and if these feelings arise through our own organism, we may thus have our first and most elementary meeting with something that we must learn more about as we develop further esoterically. We pointed out yesterday that through gradually experiencing the etheric, we come to know the amshaspans that Zarathustra taught about and who are active in our brain's etheric body. From our viewpoint, we can also say that we acquire there, in the first instance, an idea of the activity of the archangels, of what these archangels must do in us. Through what is damned up in this case, through the feelings of gratitude and shame that arise in us and carry the stamp of our personality because they originate in us, we receive the first elementary true idea of what are called the archai, or primal forces. What the archangels realize in us, we experience initially in the most rudimentary way, as described earlier. When we begin to experience etherically, we first experience the archangels and their activities in a shadowy way, in the head. Whereas we experience the arka in the organic system, which is penetrated by wisdom that produces a reaction in us. These primal forces, who are filled with a will element, yet are not quite of a volitional nature, have entered into us and work in the human personality. When we learn to feel in this way, 
we gradually get an idea of what the occultists mean when they speak of the original incarnation of our earth on ancient Saturn, where the primal forces or spirits of personality lived their human stage, so to speak. Then these spirits of personality were, in quotes, human, but now they have developed to a higher degree, and in so doing they have acquired the capacity to work from the supersensible world. And since their evolution has progressed to the degree that they may intervene on earth, we may ask whether or not in our present earth epoch they actually exercise their acquired power. They can now work from the supersensible on our corporeal nature, our sheaths, and thus evoke forces in our etheric body that manifest as described. They have directed these forces into us. And when today we feel that our organization allows us to feel gratitude and shame as a natural inner process, and you can experience this, we know that the Archai have poured forces into our etheric body so that this can become an inner experience, so that the etheric body may resonate with the wisdom in this way and for this purpose. One day, in future incarnations of our earth, human beings will also be able to imprint into the inner being of other inferior entities similar capacities so that they may develop a sheath that corresponds to our own. What we should know of the spiritual worlds will be gained gradually through inner experience, through going from physical experience to etheric experience. As you know, and I say this again only to clarify matters, on ancient Saturn, warmth was the densest physical condition, the only physical condition reached by the midpoint of the Saturn epoch. You may read in my title Outline of Esoteric Science that the physical activities of Saturn were currents of heat and cold. We can speak of these currents psychically, that is, from the soul aspect by describing the outstreaming warmth as the gratitude of the spirits of personality and the cold that streamed out in another direction as their feeling of shame. We must gradually acquire the capacity to merge physical activity with moral activity because the farther we penetrate into the higher worlds the more these two principles are connected. The physical aspect has ceased to be physical and the moral then flows through the world with the power of natural laws. Everything just described manifests as inner experience through the transformation of the etheric body. At the same time, however, it provokes something else in the human soul. The human soul gradually begins to feel a certain uneasiness that we are actually only individual beings, isolated personalities. It is important to be aware of this, and it is good to make it a rule to be aware of it. Before reaching this stage of esoteric development, the less one has developed an interest in the concerns of humanity in general or in what pertains to the human condition, the more disturbing it becomes to us as our development progresses. Those souls who remain uninterested in the human condition and who would nevertheless like to pursue esoteric development experience themselves increasingly as a burden. 
souls, for example, who are able to go through life without sympathy for the sufferings of other souls, or who cannot partake in their joy, those who cannot enter into the souls of others, experience themselves as a kind of burden as they progress in esoteric development. If we pursue esoteric development, despite our continued indifference toward human joy and sorrow, we become a heavy burden to ourselves. And we can be very sure that our esoteric development will remain a purely superficial and intellectual affair, and that we will receive spiritual teaching as if they were recipes from a cookbook or the theories of physical science, as long as we are unconscious of this burden. And if, despite our development, we cannot develop compassion for the sufferings of humanity and share in its joy and gladness. It is important, therefore, to broaden one's human interests during occult development. There is nothing worse than not trying, as we progress, to understand every kind of human feeling, human experience, and human life. This does not mean, of course, and this must be emphasized over and over, that we should silently ignore wrongdoing in the world, since that would be an injustice toward the world. It means that whereas, before taking up esoteric development, we may have felt a certain pleasure in finding fault with some human failing, such pleasure as criticizing others ceases entirely as we develop esoterically. We are all familiar with the cynic, who delights in criticizing the faults of others. Not that a healthy appraisal of human failings should cease, nor should we in every case condemn an attitude such as that of Erasmus of Rotterdam in his titled Praise of Folly. Footnote. Desiderius Erasmus, 1466-1536, Dutch scholar and humorist. He initially favored the Reformation and later came to prefer change within the Church. His in Incomium Moriae, in Praise of Folly, was published in 1509. He taught Greek at Cambridge, and later moved to Basel and then to Freiburg in Breisgau in 1529. End of footnote. One may be perfectly entitled to be severely critical of wrongful actions in the world, but for those who develop esoterically, every reproach, every word of censure, spoken or translated into action, causes them pain and promises to bring even more pain. The sorrow of being of being the sorrow of being required to find fault may serve as a barometer of esoteric development. The more we can still feel pleasure when obliged to find fault or when we find the world ridiculous, the less we are really prepared to progress. We must gradually come to understand that a living process is developing in us that makes us view worldly follies and frailties, sometimes with humor, sometimes with tears, detachment or sorrow. This inner separation or independence from what formerly commingled chaotically also forms part of the transformation of the human etheric body. The end of Lecture 5